0: This is Joy in Crisis, a 13-week Bay City Church sermon series on the Book of Philippians. To learn more about us, visit baycity.church. Well, last week we talked about becoming a citizen of God and what that means to be a part of God's family and being a part of this kingdom, this great royal priesthood that God has kind of set up for us. And if you want to be great citizens, we're going to have to understand what are the the characteristics of a good citizen. You know, Being a citizen of different places, there's all these calling cards, these different specific things that people do or say or talk uh, that kind of exemplify who they are and where they're from. And so we're gonna have to understand what is the, the calling card of, of, a, of a, a citizen of God? What is it? Well, in the ancient world, there was really one key trait that everybody knew if you were part of God's kingdom. There was one trait, and it wasn't uh, an article of clothing or anything like that. It was this, humility, humility. Yes, I know, I know. We all know a lot about humility now, but then humility was very suspect. And I suspect many of us today actually understand the value of humility. I think many of us do. And if maybe we were to ask you and say, what's one of the, the things that you value in your life? You might even say, I think humility is very, very important. Even though humility is incredibly difficult to attain, I think all of us understand that humility is actually hard to grasp. Um, I remember, uh, playing my first year in the NFL and there, you know, there surprisingly enough, I don't know what you know about the NFL, but surprisingly enough, there is actually a pr- pretty big Christian presence within the players in the NFL. It's not talked about a lot, but there actually is. And there was one Christian conference that handed out t-shirts one year and the t-shirt at the end, I remember, I remember this vividly because around the facility the next day, half of the team was wearing it. Uh, as they walk in, the shirt read this stay humble, stay humble. Now, as I heard, as I read the shirt, one thing popped into my mind, and maybe it's popping into your mind. To, to, To remind yourself to stay humble implies that you are humble. And if you think you're humble, then you probably aren't humble you understand what I'm saying that's the catch-22 of humility and another example of this one of my friends love him to death we were arguing on the practice field one day just talking back and forth and he was the type to say that he knew everything did everything and I hope he's watching this so he can realize this he doesn't know everything but one one time he was yelling about how proud he was of, of his skill and his ability and I said hey man you need to you need to Pursue humility. You need to think about humility and how valuable humility can be for a human being. And he looks at me and he's a loud guy. And he says, man, I'm the humblest guy out here. And he screams it to the point where our head coach even turns around, looks over his shoulder while the play was going on, looking at him, going, what are you talking about? He yelled how humble he was. That's the weird thing about humility, right? Just when you think you have humility, that's when you have none of it at all. It's the elusive trait If you begin to say you have it, you probably don't have it. But those are just a couple examples of how we do value humility today. But you know, it actually hasn't always been that way. Humility hasn't always been a trait that we've thought of as a positive and good thing, at least for human beings, right? Just as as a history of humans. You know, Judeo-Christian ethics didn't always exist. And today we value humility through the Judeo-Christian lens in modern Western society. But that hasn't been the case for everybody. In fact, the Greeks, the original Greek language, it didn't. they didn't have a word for humility in their original language. They didn't have a word for humility. It, they believed it was such a silly and ridiculous concept that they didn't even have a word that you would be humble person. That's silly. And the word for humility was actually coined when the church began in the first century. This is the first time we began hearing about this word humility. In fact, many people speculate that Paul himself actually may have coined this word or invented this word himself here in verse three in the text we're in. Now, during the New Testament era, the word for humility had actually a negative connotation. It conveyed something of like uh, being base or unfit, shabby. We even use the word in that way sometimes. We'll say things like uh, he had humble beginnings, you know, he, I, I, came, I come from humble beginnings. What we mean is we had shabby or of no account, humble beginnings, these beginnings that were basically nothing, worthless. In fact, humility could have been regarded, um, couldn't have been regarded by the pagan culture as a virtue. In fact, they used it for slaves. They would say, um, oftentimes, if, uh, if you had a slave, you would say, oh, he's humble because he just did his work. He didn't really talk too much. He was humble in a negative way. Well, what could have caused this sort of shift? What could have brought, caused for humanity to be thinking about humility in one way uh, in regards to shabby, unfit, and then moving into this like virtuous, selfless, um, this trait? Like What could have changed? And how could humility go from this derogatory adjective all of a sudden to this calling card of the Christian faith? Well, the first thing we need to do before to explain that is we're going to have to understand what humility really is. And to explain that, I have to go way back to Adam and Eve. They're our first parents. And so Adam and Eve, when they were created, God creates them in the garden, and their relationship with God was a humble one. It was a connected, humble relationship. You see, Adam and Eve walked once in communion with God, fully knowing him and God fully knowing them. The relationship that we all crave That's the relationship they had with God. And this relationship was humble in nature because it was always undergirded with the understanding that God is this powerful character, this powerful figure who created the garden, who created us. And they understood that, they saw it, they knew it. And so Adam and Eve rightly compared themselves to God. And so as they compared themselves to God, they realized, man, we're we're nothing compared to God, but he still loves us humbly and sacrificially gives us his 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 garden and it walks in relationship with us and so that breathes this humility in them humility comes from understanding our limits as people adam and eve fully understood that they were limited beings they couldn't be who god was now something happened of course sin enters the world and you maybe know the story adam and eve turn their back on God, and decide to go their own way. And they decide God's way is not good enough, but they want to go their way. And so they decide to take uh, from the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they believe that their way is best, of course, with the help of the serpent. And then a pride begins to enter, or enter their hearts, and then humility is tainted, and their arrogance and their own way then all comes into play. Well, C.J. Mahaney uh, is a a former pastor, and he wrote his definition of pride in his book, aptly named Humility. Here's his definition. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. This is exactly what Adam and Eve did. You see, pride is a problem as old as mankind. God creates, we leverage what God creates for our own glory and therefore tainting and uh, suppressing our humility. And then we, of course, fail to acknowledge God's role in giving us anything at all. That's why we do things like, we say things like, oh, I'm not gonna give, this is my money, I earn this money. Well, that is actually a, a manifestation of pride. God gives us money, we decide that it's ours now, and we've earned it, and then fail to acknowledge God's role in it. And instead of giving God's money back to him with either a tithe or donations or charity, we decide to keep it for ourselves. Now, pride has gotten you into trouble with God. I know that for a fact, because pride has gotten me into trouble with God. It gets all of us into trouble with God. It's in our nature. But pride's probably easier to see when it gets you into trouble with others. So just think about a few times if you think, I don't know if I'm a proud person. Think about a few times where you failed to acknowledge you were wrong in a situation. That's your pride. Maybe failing to admit failure in a, or don't, not wanting to admit failure during a project at work, or refusing, refusing to admit wrong decisions that you were wrong, or even hearing, saying something like, I would never do that to a person. I would never do that to a person, and then you do it to them, right? Or you say things like, I would never do what that person did, saying that, and then you do it. These are all symptoms of our own pride, We are our own worst enemies, and this leads me to say this. Your biggest battles in life will be the battle with your own self. So how are you going to win this battle? How are you going to fight it? How can we commit our spirits to further dependence on God and reliance on him? How are we going to do this? How are we going to earn this humility that helps us win this battle? This is where the text comes into play. First thing we're going to need to do, receive the good things of God. Receive the good things of God. We have to receive them. We know God gives good things. We're going to have to say, okay, God, you've done this. We're going to have to make that acknowledgement. You know, humility and gratitude are often linked. You know, these two big concepts, humility, gratitude. If you're not grateful, uh, you believe you deserve something better than what you've got. That's essentially what gratitude means. You believe if you've got something, you're thankful for that thing that you received. And so I'm grateful. If I'm ungrateful, whatever I've received in life is not good enough. I believe I deserved more, right? That's when ungrateful heart comes. If you're ungrateful about your life, you essentially believe you deserve a better life. That's what it is. No one who's ungrateful doesn't believe they deserve better. They're ungrateful. Now, you could be self-pitying and just say, man, I I hate what I've been given. That's one thing. But to be ungrateful means you think you deserve better. An ungrateful attitude is the perspective that what you have isn't good enough. That's what it is. So look at verse one, and we'll bake this out a little bit more. Paul says this, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, in sympathy, verse 2, Complete my joy by being of one mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Now, a better way to read this, just translation issues, and so instead of saying, so if there is any encouragement, we say this, because there is encouragement. So think about reading it like that. Because there is encouragement in Christ, participation in the spirit, because there is affection in the spirit, because there are those things, now complete my joy. right? That's the better way to look at this. So think about it. We're citizens of God's kingdom. We praise him. That's excellent. God has granted us a beautiful foundation from which to live our lives. We've been given grace. We've been given peace in our lives through Christ. We've been given family and friendship. We've been given a roof over our heads. This is a foundation we have that we should be grateful for that should lead to joy, right? Now, this isn't always the case though, right? Because some of us do believe we want something more. We feel like we need more. This isn't enough. You can actually see the size of your ego by how little things affect it. You can actually see the size of your ego by how little things affect your ego. So we've got this wonderful, beautiful foundation from God, but yet when you get out on the road, someone cuts you off and you're angry. Now, we always make this joke in church and we say, aha, this is the advice I have that I get angry in traffic. But you know what this really is? The situation where you're getting angry in traffic? It's that your ego is taking a hit. That's what it is. It's that you're ungrateful with your life or it's that you think you deserve more. See, the, the smaller the thing that affects you, the larger your ego is. As you become a more humble person through following Christ and being excited about the foundations he's given you, it's going to take larger and larger and larger things to bother you. The smaller thing that can affect your ego, the larger your ego is. How can such a small detail affect you? about how someone didn't talk to you or didn't like something that you received in the mail or didn't your boss doesn't give you credit. Do not lose the forest for the trees. These little moments in your life are just small little moments, but God has given us an entire forest to look at. And so we've got to receive the good things God's given us. Okay. How else can we win this battle? Number two, you have to see others as greater than yourself. Now, this might seem hyper-spiritual to you, and you might go, oh, here we go again, another selfless talk about how we need to care about other people more than us. Or you may say something like this, which is I've heard many times, and I've said it myself. Well, yeah, of course I need to care about other people, but I mean, I've got to take care of my own self too, right? Nobody said not to. Nobody said you didn't have to take care of yourself. But when we hear something like care about other people, we always have to go, yeah, but but, but I've got to put my own oxygen mask on before I help uh, put the oxygen mask on other people, right? That's not always a good analogy for everything, okay? It's not always a good analogy for everything. It turns out that sometimes you just need to count others as more significant as yourself. Do you know why we say that? Yeah, but what about my oxygen mask? Because the ego is threatened. We feel threatened. If I count others as more valuable, I'm sharing my glory. And I'm not sure if I can do that. Paul tells the Philippians, remember, since you have received much from God, then, verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now we read this, Paul isn't just saying um, telling them to not look at their own interests, but he's saying, but also look to the interests of others. But the most important thing we hear in this situation is he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Not He, he says the word nothing is important here, right? He doesn't say, do some things from selfish ambition. You can keep a few things you can do for yourself, but mostly everything else, you need to you know, make sure that you don't have any selfish ambition. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Paul is telling the Philippians here to be united as people are to be united. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Now, many of you recently know about the uh, Ahmad Arbery being murdered uh, by two people in Georgia. And you've probably heard this story and seen the situation where the young man was out jogging and um, went and looked, peeked around a construction site and, and then was uh, ran down by two people and killed. And basically, uh, they, they suspected that he may have been uh, a thief or something like that. Well, I'll tell you what, as I read this story, I read the story as a perfect example of selfish ambition. That's how I read the story, just like Paul says. Selfish ambition is completing our, our own self-worth to the point where the intent and the safety of others is no longer important. And so these two men, they believed that their ambition was so valuable, that the, the mission they were on was so valuable that they need to load guns and chase a man down and demand justice on their own accord. But you know who was the judge in that scenario? It wasn't God, it was them. And so in the heat of selfish ambition and conceit, these men murdered Ahmad Arberry. That's what happened. These men, charged with murder, became a pawn at the hands of their own ego. Their own selfish ambition and their own ego got in the way of them being able to make a clear decision, and now they will probably go to jail forever. If they, though, in humility, counted others as more significant than themselves, they might have had a different mindset. They might have looked at Ahmaud Arbery with different eyes. They might have said, you know what, maybe I should give this man the benefit of the doubt. Who knows? I've been wrong in the past. I recognize that sometimes I don't, I don't always see clearly, and so maybe he didn't do what I think he did. They might've said that in humility, they could have said, you know what? He could be right. I could be wrong. But instead they knew they were right. Another problem with lack of humility is that we're never wrong unless there's a shadow of a doubt. We're never wrong. If we don't have humility, unless there's a shadow of a doubt, unless there is video evidence of our transgression, we're never wrong. And that's exactly what happened in the case of Ahmaud Arbery. Now your situation may not come to murder, but it may come to other things broken friendships, divorce, adultery, addiction, detachment, all of the things that we get ourselves into when we're always right. Somehow we rank ourselves ahead of other people. And we say, based on my own understanding, my education, my race, my socioeconomic status, uh, whatever it may be, we rank ourselves ahead and we determine that we're right. That is not humility. And this is precisely why we can never say that we're actually humble. We can't ever actually say, I'm a humble person. Why? Because we're always wrong about stuff as people. What if you're wrong about being humble? You can't say, no, no, I'm wrong about a lot, but this, I'm right. Are you sure? One author author says we can't actually really ever say we're humble, but we should say this. We are not humble. We are in pursuit of humility. And I think this is a beautiful way to put it. That you and I, we're proud people. Paul says, He is the chief of sinners. He is the worst sinner he knows. I think we should all share in that with him. That you know what? I know myself better than I know anybody else. And that's true. And you know what? I'm not as good as people think I am. And if people don't think I'm that good, that's fine too. I'm worse. And I know myself. I know my thoughts. I know my words. I know my motives. Other people can for sure see my deeds. I know my deeds. And I'm just not as good as people say. This is the mindset we bring to Christ. We're not humble, we're in pursuit of humility. By God's grace, through the transforming power of Jesus, I can pursue a better life, slowly growing in humility, understanding, I just don't think I have all the facts. And that's the mindset we should pursue. Next thing, don't build up your image, be shaped by his image. Humility is not just a virtue, Christianity fabricated in a thin air to make ourselves feel better, okay? Sometimes we use it like that today. It's ridiculous because If you've ever tried to pursue humility, you know how difficult and trying it actually is. It's actually very hard. Humility itself comes from the Christ figure. Humility comes from Jesus. That's where we understand it. Actually, humility may be Jesus' most foundational characteristic because he's the only man to ever fulfill it. He's the only person to ever walk the earth to actually truly be 100% humble. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This here is a magnificent work from Paul here as he demonstrates Jesus' humility as our example He wants everyone to know that if you want to be humble, you look to Christ. The reason why you seek humility is because of Jesus. And this great doctrine in the Christian faith is called Christus Exemplar, which is just Latin for Christ is our example. So question for you, do you like leaders that tell you what to do? Or do you like leaders who actually model what to do for you and then tell you? Do you want leaders to practice what they preach, who get their fingernails dirty, who are moving boxes with you in the warehouse? Or do you like a leader that sits back in his nice chair from the top floor and points his finger while he puffs his cigar, okay? Of course, I'm painting a a cartoonish picture, but you understand what I'm saying. We want leaders that walk the walk and talk the talk that have been through it. Jesus walked the earth. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. The humblest man of humble. He walked the earth. And it says here, that Jesus wasn't a king that pointed fingers. In fact, he was a king who was at the right hand of God, got off his throne, came and bared flesh. By the way, he did not have to bore, bear bare flesh. He didn't have to do it, but he wore that flesh. He felt like he needed to live an example for us before he died and he did it. Jesus says, I'm gonna experience what they experience. I'm gonna model a worthy life for them. Jesus was true royalty. He washed the feet of his disciples. He ate with sinners. He was kind and loving to people and passionate and truthful with his detractors as well. Now, that sounds great. Doesn't that sound like the sort of life that you want? Doesn't that sound like the sort of person you want to be? True royalty, washing the feet of disciples, eating with people that other people despise, loving on people as much as you can, even speaking truth to the people that thought you were wrong. Don't you want a life like that? Well, this sort of life is only a life that can be found in humility. This isn't a pride, proud life. But while humility wants you to conform into his image, pride wants you to craft your own image. Do you get the difference? Humility wants you to change into Jesus. Pride wants you to make an make own path for yourself. Do you understand? The mind searches for the easy way to make ourselves known. Now, it's not that pride looks the same in everyone, just so you know. A lot of us... Especially today, especially in California, and especially in San Francisco, we have this vision that the only proud people, proud people that exist, are power-hungry CEOs, evil, domineering leaders, or abusive, money-hungry people. Sometimes are the are sometimes giving slight bits of charity, but only small slivers of charity uh, money to charity for press. They're just evil people. These are the proud people, but most of the time, proud can be seen in very, very small ways. You know. We've all, I don't know what your financial situation is, but I've grown up, I grew up poor and I've made money. But I can tell you that I, I know proud people that are rich and I know proud people that are poor. I know both. A steal of glory here, a desire to be made known for how good you are in this respect, to show how passionate you are, just want to pat on the back in the wrong ways, asking people for, to give you uh, some sort of uh, affection for how talented you are. That glory we should be diverting to Christ instead we absorb it ourselves. I, uh, a pastor friend um, that I, I didn't know super well but I've met on a few occasions is a, actually a hero of my faith passed away this past week. Um, he was 49 years old. His name's Darren Patrick and uh, he helped start Acts 29 as a movement, a network that we're a part of and um, he got into some trouble a few years ago. He got into some serious trouble in his ministry. And uh, as his ministry exploded, it grew really fast in just a short number of years, he, um, he started to kind of believe his own hype. And uh, Darren, uh, by his own account, would tell you and has told, it's online, you could watch it, that he started to believe the, uh, the Instagram likes and follows and the comments on his sermons and messages, at speaking at conferences, writing books, got into some weird emotional relationships with people he shouldn't have gotten those relationships with started to just believe the hype was the chaplain for the St. Louis Cardinals, the baseball team, and just really, really believed that. And doing some counseling, coming out of getting caught in all that and being removed from his his position in ministry, uh, a mentor friend said to him, he says these words, you need to pay attention, Darren, to the amount of energy you are spending creating and sustaining your own image. You need to pay attention to the amount of energy you are spending creating and sustaining your own image. Friends, we need to do the same. Just like Darren, we need to pay attention to the amount of energy we are spending creating and sustaining our own image. And this is not just online. This is in your friend group, in your your own home with your husband, your wife, your children, on your Facebook groups, Wherever it may be, you have to pay attention to the amount of energy you are creating, you're sustaining, you're creating and sustaining your own image. Image as a coworker, image as an entrepreneur, image as a spouse, image as an athlete, image as a mother, image as an influencer. Whatever you see, whatever you see yourself as, be very careful, and instead take your humility a step further, push into the conforming of Jesus, and count others as more significant. Verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, this is Jesus, to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus didn't deserve a cross. In fact, Rome, Cicero, a Roman orator, didn't think any, anybody deserved a cross, except anyone, at least outside of Rome, or everyone, anyone inside of Rome. He said this let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. See, Rome actually thought crucifixion was so gruesome that they wouldn't even crucify their own citizens. They only crucified other people outside of it. Roman citizens weren't crucified. It was just too heinous. People, you know, who are not Christians will often ask, uh, often ask me, or I've heard other people ask this question, but I've been asked personally, why do Christians celebrate crosses? Why do they put crosses around their neck Why do they put crosses on their walls? I don't run around with a gun around my neck celebrating a symbol of death. And to a large degree, I really do understand the question, but this really just demonstrates the upside down nature of God's kingdom. You see, it was at Christ's lowest moment in his life that he was at the highest peak of his love. It's in his descent into death that his followers ascend. It was in his death that we have life. God's kingdom does not work like a capitalistic transactional world. There is no quid pro quo in Christ. You do for me, I do for you. That does not exist. Jesus came off of his heavenly throne, walked down into the world bearing human flesh and took the lowest form of human life, dying torture on the most torturous device ever known. And he did that so that way the people that would believe in him would not die a death that that they deserve, but instead inherit the life that Jesus lived, the perfect life, one day in heaven. So what's the antidote to life's chaos? Humility. It's not just humility, though. It's Christ-likeness. Be like Jesus as our example. In the kingdom of God, the way up is down. Let's pray.